the Review to Name podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show tonight, we have Chris. Yo! This is our second Best of 2013 podcast, and tonight we're going to be talking about the Best of 2013 in comics. We're going to do a, an overview of the year in comics as a whole. We're going to talk about some books that we love that didn't make our, our lists. And then Chris and I are going to spend some time talking about uh, the our favorite books of the year that ended up on both of our top ten lists, which... Are actually a surprising number of books, or I guess not surprising, depending on what you think of our taste in comics. Um, Chris, why don't I kick things over to you, and we'll start our discussion of the year in comics. Okay, uh, so it was another very, very big year in comics. I think uh, it's been a pretty much, as far as I can remember, like one of the most exciting times ever to be reading comics and following the industry. Not only do you have uh, such eyes on the medium more eyes than ever before because of Hollywood's interest in adapting all these properties. But you also have new innovations such as the switch over to day and date and digital. You have major publishers relaunching their entire lines of books and you have um, some publishers kind of reinventing themselves. So I think it's uh, a very exciting time to be reading comics and uh, that the stories, the books we've been getting are just about as high quality as I can remember in recent years. So yeah, I would say just, um, 2013 has been a great year for comics, and um, there's we got a lot of stuff to talk about, so let's just dive into it. Uh, the first thing I want to mention in terms of like big things that happened in comics this year was, um, and we talked about this a lot last year, but I think it's always good to uh, recognize when big monumental runs come to a close, and we did see that this past year in that uh, Grant Morrison... Uh, finished his tenure on the Batman books, and Jeff Johns brought an epic run on Green Lantern to a close. Um, these books kind of en- uh, finished up towards the beginning of the year. Uh, neither title really made Jordan or I's list, I don't think, but they both were such achievements for both writers that we had to talk about them. We had to spend a little time just recognizing that these great runs that had finally finished up. Um, so let's start with Green Lantern because, uh, that book launched first. Um, and I just write what I want to say right at the bat. Like we've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. I think we even talked about this during one of the regular shows once, but it's worth saying again, what Jeff Johns did with Green Lantern over the past decade, and it was a decade just about, was almost unprecedented in comics. He took a lower tier character, uh, at DC and made his book sell on par with Batman, like DC's bread and butter. Like there were months where Green Lantern was outselling Batman, like gangbusters, like outselling every DC title. And for a while, Green Lantern was um, just DC's most popular character. And for Jeff Johns to do that, to take a book that had been just lagging for so long and put such life into it and basically just, create like a whole new mythos of almost out of whole cloth is just um it's an achievement and it's uh a defining run for that character almost more so than i can think of any other writer who's touched green lantern um so i i was i i was loved what jeff johns did with the title it's it lagged a little bit in quality towards the end but at the same time like green lantern on off day is still like better than a lot of other comics on the stands right now uh, those are just my initial thoughts. Jordan, uh, what did you think of the end of Green Lantern? Yeah, um, we, we did talk about, I think the end of both of these runs when they happened on the podcast, but I yeah. still feel like they were monumental enough in comics and in the year 2013 to warrant our attention for a little while. 
Um, I think, what, like, what you said uh, about Jeff Johns kind of sums it up for me, which is that, like, he basically took a character that was, you know, a second stringer at best um, and made him a tentpole character uh, at DC who holds up as many books, even now, um, after John's run has ended, almost as many books as, as the Batman franchise, which is, you know, kind of insane. Yeah. Um, that there's a book called Red Lanterns right now, for example, like, that's completely, first of all, unimaginable because the Red Lanterns didn't exist before Jeff Johns, but unimaginable just because no one would have cared. Um, I think we've, we've, we talked a lot when we actually discussed the ending of the run about how I thought the quality lagged at the end a bit, but... Like you said, it was so good for so long, and he did so much with the book that, like, I was going to stick with it and and really be be satisfied, I think, for the most part, with the ending either way, just because he'd done so much. Um, he made me care about uh, Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, and really the DC Universe at a time when I wasn't reading any DC books. Before I was a monthly comic reader, a friend of mine said, hey, you got to check out Green Lantern, and and Green Lantern was part of my... my um, movement into being a monthly comics reader so i have jeff johns at least in part to credit for that absolutely and uh i, I think one of the things that i liked most about john's time on green lantern aside from just like the wealth of new ideas that came out of that run i think most of the uh trappings i associate with green lantern comics actually come from jeff johns and what he did in those titles like there's just so many things part of those books like intrinsic parts of those mythos that john's himself developed and weren't a part of that those stories beforehand but like something i really like about what he did with the title was um he really embraced pretty much everything that had come before and like one of jeff john's greatest strengths as a writer was always this idea that like there were no real bad ideas that couldn't be fixed that couldn't be tweaked i mean um hal jordan was a character that you thought was pretty much unsalvageable given like histories of like basically writers just saying like we're going to do drastic things with him. We're going to turn him evil. We're going to like, just kill him off, move on, wipe the slate clean. And like, um, Jeff Johns found a way to like really rehabilitate the character, show you why the character had endured and still had this fan base, but at the same time, not brush away any of the other green lantern characters that had sprung up over the years that each had their own fan bases. And for a while you had four distinct green lanterns, around the the DC universe. I mean, in addition to the entire Green Lantern core, but you had like four human Green Lanterns who all had their distinct fan bases. And Jeff Johns said, no, this is fine. They can all exist within this sphere because they're all great characters and they all bring something to the table. And I think that's a little bit of something that was sort of lost with the new 52, but kind of in this instance carried over because Johns, I think, showed that there is there, there, there's a reason why all these creations endure, like why all these characters are popular. And I think Johns has always been very good at finding that. And to this day that like Guy Gardner is like now like a hugely popular character um, is just a testament to John's work on those books. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and the idea that not only do I care about Green Lantern, which I, I didn't before Jeff Johns at all. Um, but like you said, I care about all of these characters. I mean, even, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of uh, of Kyle all the time because I think some weird things have been done with him. But, like, he's even been incredibly compelling at, at certain points in the run. Yeah. And, like, I I could even see myself being sold on Simon Baz, um, you know, in the long term. Sure. Johns is great at, at showing the utility of these characters in all their different formats. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, in... 
the the whole run ended on an issue that was like huge, like just about the size of the phone book, which was a celebration of just like everything that had happened in that run so far. Um, I'm not gonna get into the specifics on that, but uh, that was I think a big moment this year, just a big exclamation point to something that had been sort of like a cornerstone of like my comic book fandom for the past decade. So it was. Um, it, it was bittersweet. Like it was good to finally like have the run come to a close, but it's like, uh, it's, um, it had been so much a part of my pull list for such a long time. Like just like knowing that Jeff Johns's Green Lantern was going to be like a book I could look forward to month in, month out. It's just like, um, it, it was one of the last like really long runs that I've been reading for over a decade. And, um, yeah, I, I will miss the book, but it was just an achievement. And, the likewise we can say that of grant morrison's work on the batman books which uh as opposed to johns who wrote green lantern title pretty much consistently throughout uh morrison sort of like reinvented the book he was writing as he went along so his run on batman spread over like four or five different titles all centered around batman but finally culminating in uh 2012-2013's batman incorporated which saw all the various allies that Bruce had made over the course of his run being brought together to fight uh, Talia al Ghul and her um, Leviathan organization. And um, it was it was a lot of threads. Like, this should be no surprise when we're talking about Morrison. It was just like a lot of threads being brought together and wrapped up in a way that you don't truly appreciate until a good reread or two. Um, but I found the run to be very satisfying. Uh one of my biggest takeaways from Batman Incorporated is Chris Burnham, who was an artist who was brought to my attention through Morrison's Batman's work and who now I'm very excited to see what's going to happen next with his career because he uh, has just a great, very dynamic style, uh, very reminiscent of Frank Quietly, but not in a way that I think is derivative um, and just someone I'm excited to see more of very soon. Yeah, I think Morrison sort of did this this grand romantic opera um, over the course of his run that that sort of faded in and out uh, as I was reading it, you know, fairly I read fairly consistently monthly, not not from the very beginning, but from reasonably early on, I guess maybe like when he started doing Batman and Robin, yeah. Um, and it sort of it it petered in and out, but but it came into into focus at the end that he was really telling a story about Bruce Wayne and Talia Al Ghul's romance. And, like, the family unit, the dysfunctional family unit that they formed when Damian Wayne came into the world. Um, and and it was sort of this this beautiful family dynamic writ global by the fact that, you know, Batman is a member of the Justice League and Talia al Ghul is an international terrorist. Yeah. Um, and, I don't know, again, I felt like I felt like the, the very ending of Morrison's run almost, actually sort of almost the opposite of John's, where John's I felt drug a little bit. I felt like Morrison's was... There was so much going on that a lot of the punches didn't land quite as much as I'd wanted them to. But good God, the scope of this thing. And I mean, I, I expect that it will get better and better on rereads as the early portions of the book got better when I reread them. Yeah, it, it's a sort of run that really tears your heart out too. Like uh, Morrison started out with a very much a, um, I think a more optimistic view of Batman than we've uh, seen from a lot of writers, especially like within the last 20 or 30 years, which have all been very much informed by um, Batman Year One, The Dark Knight Rises, pretty much the vision of Batman as seen by Frank Miller, where Morrison uh, gave us the post-Infinite um, Crisis 
more optimistic Batman. I mean, not like a happy-go-lucky character, certainly, but like a character that was able to step out of the darkness a little bit more than I think the character has been for a very long time. And then to basically culminate his entire work in saying that, no, the darkness is intrinsically a part of Batman, like bringing him back into there in like a very visceral way and like a very tragic end to some stories that, for the most point, had been as fun as they were horrific. Like there was a very, very graceful balance to Morrison's run on Batman of like, horrible crime stories mixed with fun family bat dynamic cow. stuff like bat cow exactly like damian wayne uh adopting I mean, the it's... bat cow so it was it was tonally it was it, it embraced both ends of the spectrum but then like ultimately it really brought you down towards the end of it and back into the darkness for the character it, again it's sort of this operatic this this grand guignol uh sort of feel to the whole run which is like like you said, it, it mixes very much this like this pulpy, like dark and horrifying madness that is Batman's Rose Gallery with sort of the silly, more esoteric elements of of Batman's continuity, like with things like Bat Cow. Um, and I think Morrison always had a, a good hand at balancing sort of the sarcasm and the and the silly fun of the of the book with the inherent darkness. And I think yeah, it is. It, it's a book that starts out with. Batman's deciding to spend more time with Bruce Wayne and trying to regain his humanity and ends with Batman feeling as if he's further from most of the people he loves than he's been in quite some time. Yeah, and I, that was, I feel like, really the whole point of the run. I mean, like, the symbol of the Ouroboros comes up, like, mo like throughout the entire run and throughout every single book that was being used. Um, and, and this idea, basically, that, like, comics are cyclical and any change has to be, like, sort of, like, removed almost completely wiped from the board eventually down the road. It doesn't have to be next year. It doesn't have to be the year after, but eventually there's going to be sort of like a reset of the character. And I don't think Morrison is um, uh, criticizing that aspect of comics. I think he's just acknowledging it. Um, and Yeah, some people read the ending of his run as cynical. Um, and I mean, it was dark, but I didn't see it as cynical. It seemed, yeah. it seemed to just admit that, that part of the nature of the medium he was telling the story in is that this is the way things go. Yeah, no, that's definitely how I read it too. Like, I, I think Morrison loves the medium too much to ever be truly cynical of it. I think he'll poke fun at it here and there, but I don't think he's at he, um, I, I don't think he's become jaded over the years. Uh, yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, we should probably shift now to talk about some of our other big stories in the year before we spend the whole uh, podcast talking about these great, great runs. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so the next thing we should probably mention is uh, the continuing and, well, it is to this day a continuing rollout of the Marvel Now initiative, which um, DC blazed new territory a uh, couple years back now when they launched the New 52 initiative, where they just like took their entire publishing line and relaunched it. Uh, and about a year later, Marvel started um, their own sort of very soft relaunch, basically taking some of the better ideas that DC had and, you know, just kind of doing them in a way that worked for Marvel, basically not resetting any of their continuity, but like giving every book a new, cr like a creative change and a place where fans could kind of jump on, um, maybe somewhere that was a little bit more accessible than runs that had been going on for like five or six years in the making. So we saw um, pretty much the second half of the initiative launch, the initial initiative launch, and we're starting to see some new books begin to trickle out very soon as part of a wave two of Marvel now. And I got to say for the most part, like I've been really 
impressed with the way that Marvel uh, has and is continuing to handle Marvel now. I think the thing that makes the most sense to me about this initiative is it wasn't sort of like this whole everything needs to be done at once and then this is the state of the way things are. It feels a lot more organic than the way DC did things in that like you got like a few books every month so you didn't have like every book competing against each other. It's like every month you had like two or three new books and you can just buy all three and take a look at the ones you like and then move on to the next one. It's not like every week you had 13 new number one issues, which was the case with the new 52 relaunch. And which was grueling for us when we were trying to read all of them back yeah. when the new 52 started. I still have flashbacks. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other thing I like about it is um, there seem to be really um, embracing this idea now that there is a seasonal approach to these books. Like you don't have to like let the numbering continue. Everything doesn't have to like uh, get like be renumbered every time there's like a 500th issue anniversary. They don't have to re return the series to the original numbering. It's okay to like bounce a series back down to a number one or things can have a little bit more of a, um, a natural ending. I think a good example of that coming up is like uh, when Matt Fraction's Fantastic Four and FF runs, finish out the book is go both books are going to end and then about a month later you're going to get a new fantastic four book by the new creative team and it's going to be like a logical breaking point or for instance um cable and x-force and uncanny x-force these are two books that both kind of um occupy the same sphere and i think marvel kind of realized that while both books sell decently well maybe there's not like a huge need for two x-force books and there was a logical idea for like a big culmination for these two series being that um one book like like having the two books kind of like intersect and come together for a crossover where the two x-forces are pitted against each other and at this crossover you're going to see both books come to a very natural conclusion and one x-force book is going to emerge a couple months later by its own by a new creative team uh so i i think that marvel has been pretty smart about what they've been doing and when stuff isn't working they've kind of tweaked it and readjusted it and has uh, just some really great books have come out of the initiative. So I've been very pleased with it overall. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely second that. Um, the, the rollout was much more conducive to reading all the books, which we did in both rollouts, but which I don't have flashbacks about Marvel Now's relaunch the way that I do about the new 52. <clears throat> like you said, it was sort of, it, it came out, you know, a couple every week. So you just had a chance to pick them up and they, they sort of augmented what was already going on until all of a sudden they'd picked up, uh, you picked up all of them. Um, yeah. and I think most of the time Marvel, Marvel used the relaunch to sort of recharacterize books that were ending long runs anyway. Um, and I think most of the time that's been very effective. They've moved in great new creative teams at, who've either taken the books in new directions or have done some really good things. I think with the existing direction, uh, you have examples like, Captain America, where we've seen uh, Rick Remender sort of go high sci-fi in response to Ed Brubaker's uh, grounded espionage. Something, have, yeah, something like at the time you you thought would not work at all, but like maybe was exactly what was needed to kind of shake things up for a title that you pretty much knew what to expect from for like eight years running. Yeah, and I've I've really enjoyed Captain America so far because it did something very different, and yet it's it's become. I think actually a really resonant uh, Captain America story. In a Absolutely, lot of yeah. Um, but uh, and then you have the alternative of Brian Michael Bendis taking over the X Men books, and 
basically continuing the story that's been going on with a few tweaks here and there um, and some new angles to it. And I think he's been doing a fantastic job on that as well. Yeah. Um, so unlike DC's sort of hard continuity reboot that started the New 52, Marvel's been been able to sort of fudge some things here and there and say like, well, this needed a change uh, or this creative team is leaving. This is working well. Keep doing that. Um, and it's been much less bumpy than DC's. Well, Batman and Green Lantern are still the same, but everything else is different uh, approach. Um, and overall, yeah, I think I think most of the Marvel Now books have been pretty fantastic. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. It's been um, a lot of great stuff coming out of those runs. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know that there's a whole lot much more to say other than it, we've been very impressed with what Marvel has been doing with the Marvel Now initiative and that the initiative is not over by any means necessary. Um, this next year, you're going to see Marvel... Uh, I think they're calling it all new Marvel now. Like, say what you will about the ridiculousness of that branding. It is kind of ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I think there are... There, there, it's, it's very intelligent what they're doing. So, like, a book like Daredevil, um, which is one of Marvel's most critically acclaimed series, and I'm sure we're going to talk about more later, um, it is being made more accessible through uh, a new number one that they're going to come out with. Like, same creative team... Uh, same basic direction for the book, but basically just like a natural storyline that they can pick up with a new number one issue and allow fans to maybe figure out what all the hype is about and like get on board with what's going on um, in a book that pretty much any reviewer would tell you you should be reading right now. So and we will later in the show. I'm yeah, sure. absolutely. It's obligatory for a comic show for us to tell you to read Daredevil. Um, but yeah, so I, I think Marvel uh, has done has had a very impressive rollout with their uh, Marvel Now initiative and uh, look forward to seeing more stuff in the coming year from them. Definitely. So now we wanted to shift and talk a little bit about uh, the big events that have come out of DC and Marvel this year, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, I'll, I'll take us in to, to sort of the grand overview and then you can talk about the events in particular. We wanted to talk in specific about Marvel's big event, Infinity, which has been sort of the culmination of the first leg, anyway, of Jonathan Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers books. Um, it's been a huge crossover over the last few months that has sort of started to bring threads together uh, from what is an incredibly dense, complicated, and, and now, ultimately, I think incredibly rewarding uh, run of comics. On the other side of things, we have DC's Forever, Forever Evil uh, miniseries, which led into Villains Month, and which is still ongoing now, um, and DC's Zero Year event, uh, which is based in Batman, getting sort of an origin story from Scott Snyder's run, but is sort of crossed over throughout DC and given creators a chance, and sometimes I think an obligation to write about a story, uh, to write a story that took place roughly six years before current events in DC's timeline. Um, Chris, what were your thoughts on each of these books? Um... I definitely like one event a lot more than I like the other event. And I think there is, I mean, there, there's definitely a number of reasons for that, but I think the main reason why I'm enjoying one much more than the other is an issue of how the two, the big two handle their events right now. And I mean, I, I think infinity is by far the superior uh, event book that we have coming out that came out this summer and i mean there's a whole number of reasons for that one um i think jonathan hickman is a better long-range storyteller he kind of knows exactly where he's going most of the time he always kind of has a plan of where that's going to end up 
And I feel like you get a little bit more payoff within the story, whereas um, sometimes, and this isn't the rule because like there's definitely been exceptions to this, Blackest Night for one, but like Jeff Johns sometimes has a tendency to sort of just like do that Bendis thing of like the story you're telling is just kind of setting up the next story. Like it's just like, let's get on to the next thing. But um, I, I think the thing, the distinction that really stood out for me is this idea of um, the way the big two pace their events. And Marvel has become so good at knowing how to pace an event um, that they almost have it down to a science. Uh, I, for me, like, Forever Evil, like, I don't really find anything wrong with the story, per se. Like, it, it's even, like, when I think about the beats of it, it it's not a bad—it's a pretty solid idea for, like, like a story. I mean, it's not, like, reinventing the wheel or anything, but it's, it's a pretty solid, like, big event book. Like, basically, there's an evil Justice League from another world that's come in. Uh, done away with our Justice League and basically given the villains free reign of the earth and now maybe there are some villains who might be our only hope. Like, that's a pretty solid idea for an event book. But I think the difference is is that you have a, this mini this seven-issue-long miniseries is shipping over the course of seven months and that's if the art schedule doesn't ship and in my experience, David Finch is probably going to need a wait, week here too to, like, hit these deadlines. And so you are have, like, this almost year-long event, which is sort of made less exciting for this, the idea of, like, this is, like, this is all the entire status quo for, like, most of the year. Because, like, there's so many different books crossing over it, and pretty much everything is, like, oh, the villains are in charge, the villains are in charge, the villains are in charge. And, like, this is pretty much... It, it, you can see how you would get tired of that really easily. Whereas Marvel gave you their whole big event... In the span of less than four months, I want to say, at a pace where, because it wasn't just the six-issue Infinity miniseries, it was also all the Avengers and New Avengers tie-ins, it was, I think, somewhere around 16 or 18 books total in the entire event miniseries, if you want to like get the entire scope of it, and you were getting maybe like at least two books every week, and it was lightning fast, and things happened, they moved along, the tie-ins mattered, they didn't completely kill the core miniseries itself if you weren't reading the tie-ins, you weren't lost with the core miniseries, but they definitely added a lot. And it just kept things moving along at such a great pace that you just wanted more, and by the time it was over, I had had enough. I felt good. Like, it, it did not overstay its welcome. It really kept me involved in the story by ramping up the pace and the tension in a period of time that kept me invested in it. And it really stuck the landing and got there in a matter of time that was very pleasing. Uh, I'll do this. Parents, if you are listening to this podcast with your children, <laughs> that really surprise me. Turn down the volume for a minute. Because um, I'm going to go ahead and say, Chris, I absolutely agree with you that Infinity is the better miniseries. And in fact, I think Infinity was fantastic. And when I was starting to make my list, Infinity was in consideration as the miniseries itself for one of the best books this year. I think it was phenomenal. I think Forever Evil is a goddamn train wreck. <laughs> um, first of all, you derailed every single storyline that DC was telling for Villains Month, which was mostly a bunch of shitty comics and villains um, with the occasional spotlight. The, the actual story itself does not do nearly as much for me as it does for you, even though I'll agree that it's actually fundamentally a fantastic Lex Luthor story. Um, and I think there are some interesting things around the fringes of it. But what you've basically done here uh, with Forever Evil, for me at least, and I think this is not the case with you, but for me at least, 
you've convinced me I don't need to buy any Justice League book for the next seven months. <laughs> I'm reading Trevor Evil. Um, I don't care about any of the miniseries. And, like, most of the books that I read are either not paying attention to Forever Evil at all or seem to not exist during the Forever Evil timeline. So it's basically pointless for the DC continuity. Um... Yeah, and, but like, know, do, what, what I, I'm sorry to derail you for a second, but like a lot of the issues that you just mentioned are like things that I think would maybe not be solved by, but very much more mitigated by if this book was shipping on like a bi-monthly schedule for this. Like, think of that if they they had done Forever, if Forever Evil had been like like bi-weekly or like like best case scenario weekly or something. If they had like just the artists like trade off the way that Marvel does to keep their events moving at a good pace. Like, if this was like a thing that happened like reflected the way it's supposed to happen within the DC universe. It's, it's just like this quick thing that comes in, disrupts everything, and then you have to try and pick up the pieces and move on after that. I think... I think it'd be much more interesting. Exactly. I, I think, like, Marvel realizes that you got to get these events out fast and do them quick because, like, the fan attention span isn't going to hold out for these event books that kind of, like, derail and become center stage everywhere when they have so many other great books that they're following. Well, and I think we've talked about this before, but I think Marvel does this across its line really, really well. Where I'm reading Marvel books that I would have dropped uh, months ago if they were DC books because they come out every other week. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember what's going on here. Sure, I'll check it out again. Like, I, I'm i still reading Fearless Defenders, a book that I think is actually pretty solid. But if it was a DC book coming out once a month, I would have dropped it by now. I wouldn't remember what was going on because I don't care about it all that much. But Marvel's books come out fast enough that I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll stay on board. And I think I read a lot of comics that I, I wouldn't otherwise that I quite enjoy because of that publishing schedule. Um, but, but it's especially important with events because Marvel events, you end up feeling like they tie into the actual universe. Whereas DC events, by the time the event finally finishes, you've been watching the aftermath of it for so long and so many other books that it just like, it doesn't matter. Whereas if, yeah, if forever evil was villains month, if they had done like, if, if the story was four issues instead of six or seven, it's going to be right. Yeah. If the story was four issues instead of seven, or if they had done, you know, six weeks instead of seven months, um, they could have done Villains Month, and it all would have felt like it was happening at the same time. Yeah. And then you would have been you would have picked up with books dealing with the aftermath of it. And honestly, when we when we saw Scott Snyder was doing Zero Year, I understood it to be so that he could avoid Batman grieving Damian Wayne for a while. But it seems to me like Scott Snyder was smart because he doesn't have to deal with any of this Villains uh, Forever Evil bullshit. Like, yeah. No, Scott totally Scott Snyder definitely knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't have to deal with any of this. He's just doing something completely different and much more effective. Yeah. Um, but if if your books have to duck and roll out of the way of your events, I feel like something's going wrong. Whereas Infinity feels like the perfect culmination of a year plus worth of Avenger stories, um, and really got me excited for where things are going next. I mean, this is this is the exact culmination of of what an event book should be, and I think like. I'd say it's the, it's the best event book uh, in recent memory. Um, it really, I think it blew the doors off the place. Um, all of the tie-ins, even, the, even some of the more esoteric tie-ins, like I read a couple issues of Mighty Avengers because I was interested enough in what was going on uh, in Infinity to say like, hey, like something's going on over there, I'll check it out. And usually, even if I'm not still reading the book, I didn't regret it because the story was so compelling that watching sort of the, the outer fringes of it was still even interesting. Sure. No, I'll definitely agree with you on that. Like, I, I think Infinity is really an achievement in terms of making an event not only matter, but also be really high quality throughout and sustain. Um, it it really was a great book this year, and um, it 
it, yeah, it, it's it, it's it's just further proof that Marvel has really learned from every single event that they've done, be it um, having multiple pencilers on an event book so that there's no chipping um, the slip ups ever. Like I think that's a smart idea. Um, the the shipping schedule, which I just touched on before, is great. The way they handle tie-ins, like pretty much everything they do about events has been a lesson that they learned in a past event that they've carried over into the next one they've done. So I think Marvel has been really good at learning from their mistakes, whereas I feel like DC is almost kind of going with the same format that formula they've always done for events. Um, and I don't really think it. I don't. I don't really think you can do event books like like now that I've experienced like the Marvel way of doing event books. I don't like the other way of doing it. Like I, I it, it's just too slow and plotting for me to like have them come out at the pace of a regular comic book. Think of how deeply sad it is that this is really the first limelight event of the new 52. And like, yeah. what it's done is I'm reading less books and I'm mad about a lot of the books <laughs> I'm reading. Like that's what their, that's what their first major event has done. Um, and like, it's not to be about books that I don't know if I'll pick back up. Like, I don't know if I'll be reading Justice League when this is all over, because I don't really miss it now that I'm not reading it. <laughs> wow. So, I would say it's a huge misfire on DC's part, but we should probably move on, because we have one yeah. more thing we want to talk about before we get to specific books, right? Okay, yeah, and we've talked about this a lot in the past, so I'm not going to, like, spend too much time on this point, but really what I want to say is, like, for me, has been the biggest story in comics coming out of this year is, um, well, I think the best way to say it is just, Ed Brubaker, Matt Fraction, Rick Remender, Jonathan Hickman, Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh, J. Michael Straczynski. Um, these are all people that have launched an image book in the past year. And there's more beyond those names I just rattled off right there. Uh, image has become an absolute powerhouse in uh, the in the comics industry and has become the go-to place for creators who want to like do their passion projects. If you have like a story you really want to tell image is the place. It seems like is the most attractive for comic creators to go and do it. And what I love about image is that you have big name creators and, um, sort of people who are just getting their feet wet in the industry alike, working on these books and working on the books that they most want to do, like the books they're most excited about the books that they write things like Fantastic Four and Captain America to get the money to do the stuff that they really want to do. Like this is these are the passion projects, and they're all kind of coming with in-house image right now. To me, it makes image like one of the most exciting publishers out there, and I am just continuously excited to see the new announcement of like the next slate of image books that are coming out, and who's the next creator that's going to like do the book that they've been dying to write for years at Image. Um, it is, it, it, it's it's just so much talent under one roof and so many different kinds of books too. I mean, like I, we, we uh, like genre books were few and far between, I think before the last two years at image where image really embraced the idea that like, maybe there is a place for Westerns and noir and horror books in the marketplace. And maybe there are fans that are like looking for something new that we just don't need like slightly different kinds of superhero stories. Maybe there are other kinds of stories we can tell in this medium too. So, the the sheer amount of creativity that's coming out of Image Comics right now is, to me, the most exciting thing that happened in comics in 2013. And from the looks of it, shows no sign of slowing down in 2014. So uh, if we 
declared a publisher of the year, which we don't on this podcast, like Image would definitely have my vote for being the publisher of the year. Let's let's put it this way. Roughly half of my top 10 comics of the year come out of Image Comics. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, clearly not true of either of the other of the big two. Um, I have what? One, two, three. I'm counting right now. Uh, four Marvel books, uh, two DC books and four image books on my uh, top 10 list. Yeah. So like image is, is, I mean, image and Marvel, I guess are neck and neck, but image is, yeah. is doing some of the best works in the, the best work in the medium right now. Um, and from like most of its biggest creators. So it's, yeah, I would say if there's a, if there's a winner in comics this year, it's image comics. Um, with that, we should probably move on because we got a lot of books to talk about. Yes. All right. So um, let's start talking about. So what we're gonna books. do? I'm gonna keep us very strict on time. Chris and I have talked about this. We're gonna do uh, some books that we like that didn't make either of our uh, top books of the year list, and we're gonna give a minute to each of us for each of the books we talk about. So Chris, I'm gonna start you out. Uh, I'll time you, and I will do a giant annoying buzzer sound. Um, I'll introduce the book that you're gonna talk about to save you those seconds. Uh, Chris is going to give us a minute on Daredevil. Okay, so the thing I really love about Daredevil has been the synergy between Mark Wade and Chris Samney. I think Chris Samney is an amazing visual storyteller, and Mark Wade knows how is such a veteran of the industry that he knows exactly when to just kind of like take a step back and let Samney really let the book sing. Had a great arc to begin the year where Daredevil was under attack from an enemy who was approaching him in a completely unconventional way, and also a real true embrace of the bromance between him and Foggy Nelson when it's revealed that Foggy has been diagnosed with cancer and the showing that these two supporting each other as they always have this being like I think the most important relationship of Daredevil has really just been a celebration of like why these two have stuck by each other like all this time despite all the terrible things that have happened to each to themselves from their association and their association with Mass Life with Daredevil it's a great book and it's a incredible team in comics i really recommend it i'm very sad it didn't make my list but it is a powerhouse of a book <laughs> i did it i told you I would. yeah okay um now go ahead and toss it over to me okay so it. your next book is swamp thing and go all right um so i did not expect that i'd be reading swamp thing i'd planned to drop swamp thing when scott snyder finished writing it and then charles sewell took over and it has been uh a, really a phenomenal book it's gotten a little bit more back to the to the book's horror roots but he's also taken it in some really interesting and strange directions. You've seen Sewell sort of embracing what's unique about Swamp Thing as uh, an avatar of the green as opposed to a regular superhero. You've seen him sort of dealing with the green as a place with its own mythos. And you've seen him come up with some new and interesting ways uh, to approach the idea of what a bad guy would look like for Swamp Thing. I mean, coming out of Snyder's really smart work on, on creating the rod as an adversary, uh, or really, I guess, maybe reinvigorating it... Um, Sewell has done some really interesting and completely different stuff. So it's a book that I didn't plan on even being reading at this point, and it was in consideration for my top 10 list. Uh, completely and definitely worth your time. Really some different stuff. If you're if you're mostly a superhero person, Grab it up. you don't want to go... All right. <laughs> um, so now I'm going to kick it back to you, and you are going to tell us a little bit about Jonathan Hickman's Avengers, and go. What I really liked about Avengers this year is just how much it was connected to Infinity and the sister book, New Avengers, and how much all three kind of like fed in and out of each other, weaving this giant tapestry of a story. There's a lot of characters in the book. They don't always get their day in the sun, but I think Hickman is realizing that and is starting to address that in better ways. And for me, the most exciting thing about the Avengers book this year has been the seeds Hickman is being la is laid for like what's to come later in his run. 
and some great visceral moments like when you saw for like one of my favorite moments of the year and it's simply like a visceral fanboy thing is basically Annihilus, Ronin, the Super Scroll, uh, and Gladiator all becoming like reserve Avengers for an issue and beating down uh, Thanos's generals so that they can help the Avengers get back to Earth and free the Earth after the Avengers have basically led the charge in saving the entire galaxy from the builders. A lot of great work being done in this book, both on a macro level and a micro level. Um, okay. <laughs> and on to you for New Avengers, also by Jonathan Hickman. I'm going to pick up the torch here. Strangely enough, I've said a lot about how much I love Infinity, and I do, but I actually think the Infinity tie-ins of New Avengers have been the weak point of that book this year, and that's how good that book has been this year. Um, the story that they're telling about the Illuminati, you've got Beast, uh, Captain America, Iron Man, uh, Doctor Strange, Black Bolt, Namor, some of the big, uh, Reed Richards, some of the big heavy hitters in the Marvel Universe coming together and facing a problem that's completely intractable and having to morally compromise themselves to try to save the entire universe. It's been really fascinating stuff. Um, you've seen great character interactions from characters who usually don't really even like each other and who have trouble working together um, trying to figure out a way to save the world without losing their souls. Um, and it's really ph phenomenal, compelling stuff that has continued to be really interesting even during Infinity, even as it's been derailed slightly. So this is just a great, great book that is tied into the... Uh, Avengers universe very well, but has also been telling some really great character-based stories on the side. Um, if you're not reading New Avengers and you're reading the other ones, that's crazy, but you should be picking up New Avengers. Either way, I think it's going to come next time. Actually, I'll let you finish <laughs> that thought off. And like, I, I think that you should be picking up New Avengers if you're reading any Marvel book, because like I like in every interview that every creator gives at Marvel, they've been saying that like New Avengers is what's going to be happening for like the next four or five years, like the stuff that's started in this book. So it's it's important. It's not a throwaway title. Like, and the, I mean, what they what they've started. I think year two of New Avengers is going to be just incredible. Oh I yeah. Mean, there are so many things in play right now, and it's it really is a great book, both from from a Hickman dense macro plotting perspective and from a character perspective. Um. So, but I've taken more time than I've given. We're going to move into books of the year now. What Chris and I are going to do, we're going to start off by talking about. Uh, the books that we did not overlap on, so you guys will get a little feel for everything that's going to be on our top ten lists. Um, not going to do a limit you to a minute, Chris, but we'll keep it tight on your your three books that were not on my list that are on your top ten list. Okay, so the first book I want to talk about is Colin Bunn. This uh, Colin Bunn's The Sixth Gun. It is a horror western, and it is uh, it doesn't come out. I, I think monthly. I think it's like on a bi monthly schedule right now. But the world that he has created is just so well-formed, and you have this epic storyline about these demonic guns and the people that want to possess them for the power that they give you in this mortal plane and also the ability that you have once you possess all six to sort of like remake and bend reality to your will is just sort of epic in scope and not the kind of thing you see being told in the Western genre very often. And what I really like about what's been happening with the book this year is like a lot of the various different fan favorite characters have finally sort of come together and uh, you finally see like a lot of these storylines crossing together and maybe beginning the title's endgame. Um, artist Brian Hurt does pretty much all the arcs of the series. He takes a break between each arc for like a standalone issue, but his storytelling is amazing and... I, there's so many thing, great things I can say about Brian Hurt's work on this title, but the best thing I can say is like one of the primary rules for art and comics is limit gunfights because it's impossible to make a gunfight dynamic on the static page. Brian Hurt does it 
every issue in new and exciting ways. It's he is a powerhouse of an art. He's just does uh, like he, the angles he uses, the emotion he imbues in characters, and the um, the imagination he has to create these action sequences that should not work in static form but make them work every single issue and feel unique and it's not like just the same repetitive thing over and over again is really impressive i highly recommend this book it is just getting better and better with each issue and the characters are um just more and more fleshed out as time goes on uh i could gush more about it but uh, i want to move on to the next book which is something I was sort of a latecomer to. This is IDW's horror series Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. For if you recognize the name Joe Hill, you know him as the novelist who is the son of Stephen King. Um, his horror series has been unfolding for years now in small mini series. Uh, I think it's like a six issue mini series that dribbles out over a year or two. But this past year, we saw the final three issues of Lock and Key Omega and the first issue of Lock and Key Alpha, which is pretty much the end game of the series. There's only one issue left. It is not shipped at the time of this podcast, but it will ship within 2013. Um, the thing that I love about Lock and Key is that it's a horror book that really works in the sense that um, you the characters are so well-formed and you care about them so much that the horror doesn't come from like jump scares or the monsters or the terrible things that pop up from page to page. And there are some truly horrifying things that happen to this family and that um, that Gabriel Rodriguez draws in a style that is just completely... Like it, it's it's very unique. It's almost like cartooning it sometimes, but at the same time, there's just like visceral gore and like really terrifying images that he imbues into his work. Um, the true horror doesn't come from that, but so much as just how much you're worried that something terrible is going to happen to these characters, and not even just the main characters, but like the supporting cast has become so well fleshed out and so beloved that like. Any character leaving this tapestry is just going to hurt the book and change the book dramatically. And it's just like you love every single one of these characters and want to see them make it to the end, even though you know that a lot of them are not. Um, finally, I want to talk about FF, which is uh, the sister title to uh, of the two Fantastic Four books Matt Fraction is writing right now. Uh, well, he chronicles the adventures of the titular Marvel family uh, in Fantastic Four, FF kind of focuses on the replacement team that the Fantastic Four chose to sort of stand in their stead while they went on vacation. And this group was going to run the Future Foundation, teach the gaggle of brilliant kids with special needs that they've kind of developed under one roof. And they were going to basically be the backup Fantastic Four if something went wrong. Of course, it being the Fantastic Four, something goes wrong. And this very disparate group of people, Ant-Man, Medusa, She-Hulk, and Johnny Storm's pop star girlfriend, Darla Deering, become the new Fantastic Four. And it has been just a celebration of the history of Fantastic Four and of the comics medium and everything about uh, fun comics in this title it's uh it's a book where you have julius caesar basically joining the family because it's shown that he was like a pink smoke alien that met the original fantastic four when they were back in time and they made such an impression that when he found out that the fantastic four was in trouble he just decided to come by and help out the new fantastic four uh for a while it's it's a book that really can go anywhere and do anything and the synergy between matt fraction and mike allred has just been something really really special uh and it it just 
I, I can't underscore Mike Allred's contribution to this book enough in saying that Matt Fraction had to leave both titles a little bit before the, his runs finished up. You can definitely see his departure from Fantastic Four hurting that book a lot more than it has FF. And I think a lot which part of that is that Mike Allred and his brother Lee Allred, who stepped in to kind of like finish the scripting, um, work really well together. And that Allred, Mike Allred, the artist, was a big uh, factor in like the direction of this book and like maybe some of the choices that were made along the way. Because like it really hasn't changed all that much since the depart- departure of Fraction. Uh, Jordan, do you have any thoughts on the one book, FF, that you're reading? Um, FF is fantastic. I'm really sad to see that it's ending. And it, that it didn't suffer when Fraction left, and it really didn't, I don't think, uh, is basically a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, great book. Uh, and I guess with that, i got to take over and talk about my three books that didn't um, make the list. I'll be tight because we are going to run over already. Uh, <laughs> and just say, Wolverine and the X-Men has been consistently the best X book um, that Marvel's been publishing for years now. It's it's kind of everything I, I never knew I wanted from an X-Men book and have since learned that I can't really live without. It's It's got big overarching storylines, it's got character development, it's got um, a huge cast that is actually still well served, and it's um, it's funny, it's weird, it's it's suspenseful, it's it's just kind of everything that I wanted of an X-Men book. Um, yeah, yeah, it and is. had another good year. Um, Sex Criminals. This is a book that really didn't release enough issues to deserve a place on my top ten list, but I could not resist. Um, it is three issues in at the time of this podcast and is absolutely flat-out incredible. If it had had even, you know, one or two more issues this year, it would have been much higher on my list. Uh, it's also uh, a Matt Fraction book, so we each have a Fraction book on our, on our three that didn't overlap. Um, and it's just, it's a beautiful personal book about... Uh, romance and sexuality and crime um and it's 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 got its own wacky sense of humor and its own uh sort of time-stopping narrative that it's doing but yeah but it's really uh it connects with me emotionally uh, as a book about like growing up and about love and about sex and all the ways those things seem to get complicated and intertwined and it's just it's absolutely fantastic and if you're not reading it if you're not reading any comic you should be picking up sex criminals um i'll go with that for yeah you. it's it's i mean it's obviously not autobiographical but it, it feels sort of like almost universally autobiographical in a lot of the themes that it explores and a lot of the ideas of um just like the inherent loneliness there is and like sort of like a coming of age story like anyone's personal coming of age story and like so I, I feel like there's a lot of emotions in that book that are pretty much just like very universal and it feels like a very very personal story that just happens to be a comic book and it involved time-stopping orgasms um <laughs> it, it it's it's not like like it was originally like uh build is like like sort of like a very raunchy sex comedy and it, it is in some ways but to me it's like very much it's much more of a it, it's much more sweet than it is raunchy i think um i find the book to be like infinitely it's, it's charming a, it's a very it's a book that wears it's hard on its sleeves even as it has sort of constant anal sex jokes <laughs> yeah <laughs> constant Which is, it's, it's we're not joking about that, that. No, no, there's there's a reasonably constant anal sex joke runner. Yeah. Um, and they're funny jokes, but it's really, it's it's a book called Sex Criminal, full of, uh, with multiple integral scenes set at a sex shop called Cum World that is actually maybe the sweetest book I'm reading right now. Yeah, it truly, um, it, it, is, it is a book of contradictions and it is wonderful for being that. 
Uh, okay, and I will I will um, wrap up really quickly and say the last book that's on my list that, that is not on yours is Thor, God of Thunder, which is just Jason Aaron telling several different, in this year, phenomenal fantasy stories that have really taken the God of Thunder um, and the mythological and fantastical aspects of the Marvel Universe to a different level and allowed Thor to be its own book outside of Thor's work, The Avengers, which it hasn't felt like he really is in, in a while. Um, it's got beautiful, gorgeous art, uh, and it just it feels like something very different that still fits within the Marvel Universe. So I love it deeply for that. Yeah. Um, Isad Ribic just killed it on that book this past year. Like, his, his style is so beautiful. He's moving over to Avengers now. Uh, I think Thor is the better fit for him, but like, I'm not going to say no for his, to see his work anywhere. Um, yeah. So those are our books that didn't make each other's lists. Uh, they're all great books. Um, we highly recommend all of them. Uh, I, Jordan, I am reading all of the books that you just mentioned right there. And for me, those were all, those were three really, really hard cuts I had to make. Although I cheat a little bit in that, like, uh, I'm doing a, list of best new books of the year and sex criminals spoilers definitely makes that list um right now let's move on to talk about the books on our list that did overlap and these ones i mean we're still pressed for time so we can't spend too much time talking about this but let's dive into the books that um are that we both had on our list and that we both think uh that we both liked enough that we want to both talk about and let's start off with batman which has spent majority of the year uh, in the Zero Year arc, which has seen um, a flashback to... Uh, it, it's basically Scott, Scott Snyder's own take on the origin of Batman. And I gotta tell you, I was not really looking forward to this story. I mean, I love what Scott Snyder is doing with Batman. Snyder and Capullo are doing with Batman. Um, but Batman's origin is such well-tread ground that I really wasn't looking forward to seeing a new sort of like bit of tweaks on a story that I'm really familiar with. But honestly, I love this. Like every issue I have loved. And if you've noticed, they're, they're, these issues are huge. Like I think every single one of them has been like a few pages extra. If not, one of them I think was like double size, the normal size of the comic book. And there's been a lot of great moments there. I, I think Snyder has perfectly captured the young brash Batman who's kind of making mistakes. He's This isn't the seasoned... Uh, Dark Knight detective that we come to know who has a plan for everything. This is a Batman who's a little bit too cocky. He fucks up occasionally, but at the same time, it's like it's you're really seeing his metal being tempered. You're really seeing uh, this origin story in a way that's very fun and visceral, very reminiscent of Batman Begins. And I almost kind of hear the Nolan soundtrack in my head when I'm reading these issues. Um, so yeah, it's it's just been phenomenal stuff, and I'm very excited for this continuation of the story. Um, yeah, I, I was equally not excited for Zero Year, although, like I said earlier in the podcast, I've since come to realize it was probably a very wise decision for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's amazing to me how, just how much Snyder's been able to pack in so far. I mean, we've basically gotten, uh, not just a Batman origin story, but an origin story for the Joker and, uh, the Riddler so far in what we've been seeing, as well as plenty of, uh, character development for, uh, the younger Jim Gordon and various other ancillary Batman characters. There's just, and some there's some new guys too, like the uh, in the most recent issue, the new villain they've introduced, um, uh, Mister Death or whatever, the guy the guy with the bone growth thing. It's yeah. it, like terrifying visuals. Like Capullo, just like the tree of bones is like an image that still haunts me. Like it, it sticks with you, and like he's so good at drawing 
like the superhero Batman and then just like instantly shifting into like the, the more horrific side of Gotham. Um, yeah, and and I mean it is like I didn't expect it to. I didn't expect Zero Year to be as far-reaching as it's been so far, which has kept it from being just another origin story about Batman being young and fucking up, which is something that like has been done well enough times that I don't know if I needed it, even though Snyder's doing it very well. Yeah, this is also I mean. Whether or not, wherever it's said, it's been a great Riddler story so far, although I think it gets some resonance from how new Bruce is to dealing with things like this. Um, it's been a great Riddler story, a pretty solid Joker origin story, which is a thing that I kind of inherently hate. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and it's like, it's been, it, it's not even like explicitly said. I mean, it's like you can infer enough about it. So it's like, it's not like, it, it isn't even really a Joker origin story per se. It's like like the the character we're seeing in there is pretty much already a well formed or at least quite on his way to be forming Joker. It's not like you're seeing like Joker sitting around a living room as a child being abused and oh wait we did get a comic for that happened this year. Oh uh, yes we did. It wasn't that fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh god why? Um, moving on. Um, but no, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is it's not like. It does, it's not an origin story that's taking away the magic of the character. It's more like a Joker year one story than it is a, this is the origin of the Joker and this is why he is the Joker. This is more like the Joker at the start of his career, not like, this is yeah. why he is crazy. Right. And that actually, it did, one of the things, maybe my favorite thing about the Joker portion of this arc, as uh, if we can call it that even, is that it did, it did do sort of a, like, a, a, as much of an origin story as you can do while keeping the Joker virtually completely shrouded in mystery yeah uh which is what i like about his character which i generally is what i generally hate about origin stories yes um uh we should probably move on past batman because i feel like it's basically just consistently been an awesome book and we gotta we gotta keep moving here but do you have any last thoughts no um it's 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 good stuff it's maintaining its quality and uh it's just getting better yeah, I, I agree. Um, I hope it lasts for a long time. Yeah, yep. Um, why don't we shift into East of West, which is a book that really just blew me away from the be from the beginning. Uh, this is this is um, a book that's doing something really completely different than anything else out there. It's 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 a futuristic western set in a, a version of America that is divided into several different countries, um, in which the four horsemen of the apocalypse are returning and and. It's kind of like the complexities of it, you know, it's it's a standard Hickman story in that way, right? Like the yeah. complexities of it mean who the hell knows what's going to be happening six issues from now. But the master story is being developed elegantly over over each issue so that enough happens that there are developments. And yet each issue is really just gorgeous world building where you're finding out different things about different strata of the society and different areas of how it works out. And it's just, it's, it's probably the most unique book I've been, I was reading this year in that it's fusing so many different genres and ideas together and doing it so fluidly. Um, it's a beautiful, fantastic book. <laughs> Hickman is really good at, I, I don't know if it's that he's really good at pacing or if it's just that like, I've read so many Hickman books that I know I, I'm confident to let him just kind of take me where I want to go. But you're saying there's no way to know what's going to happen in five or six issues. I'm not even like entirely sure of what's happening in some of the issues I'm reading of this series. It's one yeah, of those I, things where honestly, it's... if you ask me to describe the master plot of this book, it's like, I can, I could give you some vague, you know, ideas, but it's, it could be anything at this point. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. I, I you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, he, 
he really has kind of given you enough to just like kind of keep it like he he's made like he gives you enough to like make you interested and like not so much that you're completely confused and lost it's like he gives you exactly what you need and then a little bit more that you have questions that you want more you want to learn more you want to like gather more about this world and it's so fully formed in his mind that you know i think that there's like a there's like a confidence in the swagger that comes across in the writing and that like he knows exactly what's going on and he makes it so clear in his script that it's fine that you might not exactly have all of the pieces or even a, a, a majority of the pieces at the moment. They're gonna, he's gonna make everything clear. And it, it's just, it, it really works. Like, like there's, there's definitely like kind of tone to it. it. It reads different than other Hickman books. Like there definitely is sort of like that brusque sort of quality to the dialogue that you could sort of expect from a Western. And there seems to be, um, the rules to this world that Hickman has like very clear in his own mind. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's the kind of series where it's like, it's just immersed you in this like otherworldliness, but not so much that it feels completely alien in a sense that's off putting. It's, it's interesting. It's like, it's just close enough to our world in certain details, but then removed enough to just be like fantastical. Uh, and I also want to talk about, uh, Nick Dragota's art on this series, which oh, has, yeah. um, like, like Nick Dragota, I, I, he came to my attention during Hickman's uh, Fantastic Four FF stuff, which was good. This is amazing. Like, this is almost like if you had shown me this back when I was seeing Nick Dragota's stuff on his superhero work, I wouldn't have thought this was the same guy, even though it obviously is. Like, it, you can see that this is, like, the same person and his style has evolved. But, oh, my God, the level he took his work to. And the coloring on this book is also phenomenal. Like, it is just vibrant, gorgeous colors. Um, especially, I'm a huge fan of the first issue, which was just different shades of orange and blue on every page. And it was amazing. It is just a feast for the eyes. Yeah, it's, I mean, and the mind. Honestly, it feels like what we've been given for East of West is the first few chapters of what's going to be, hopefully, a giant epic. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's something I think... Hickman could be unspooling this for years to come, and uh, like basically, I think if we haven't sold you by saying like I honestly couldn't tell you half of what's going on, and I love the hell out of it. Yeah, um, like there we're was a, great there was reviewers, political, by the way. There was a political conversation <laughs> uh, in the last issue that I was like, "This is amazing! I have no idea what they're talking about." <laughs> um, Hear that, kids? Like, Dense politics. Read East and West. <laughs> I feel like um, we are selling this book so well. I was gonna say I feel like we're scaring people off as much as we're selling the book, oh, but really, it's it's one of the best books on the shelves, uh, and it's completely different than anything you're probably reading. So go pick up East of West and check it out, and and then maybe you can explain it to Chris and I. <laughs> All right, moving on before we embarrass ourselves even more. Hawkeye, <laughs> or as we like to call it, and as we must call it, Hawk Guy. Hawkeye. Uh, so what I really liked about Hawkeye this year is that. Um, what what I had come to expect from the book in the first year was not what I got from the book in the second year. The book that had kind of sort of like reinvented a lot of ideas of the street-level superhero sort of reinvented itself again and was like, we have a winning formula that's really successful. We can keep doing it or we can venture off and try some, and do some other stuff. I think there was only maybe like, I want to say um, eight or maybe nine issues of Hawkeye that shipped this year. I want to say maybe like, five of them actually starred Clint. And that's like a high number in my mind. I'm not even sure it was that many. Um, 
But, like, you had issues that focused on different members of the supporting cast, be it his estranged brother Barney Barton or his uh, his dog, his dog who loves pizza, who gets an pizza entirely dog. silent issue where pizza dog gets to solve a crime. Um, it's, it's just, it, it's a book that is very, very bold. It is not afraid to take chances. Um, it attracts some of the most high-caliber artists in the industry. I mean, when you have... Um, David Aja as your main artist, like that's pretty much you. You can pretty much just take that home to the bank right there. But then to have like uh, Francisco Francovia come in as your like backup hitter, like that's that's incredible. Like that is an incredible stable of artistic talent for one book. And um, it, it what, what also just impresses me about so much is like I don't know a book that can be so much fun yet so soaked in melancholy and self loathing at the same time. It is. It, it it just really defies classification in a lot of ways. And I think that's, like, something that is said of, like, the best kinds of genre fiction is that you can't really, like, pin it into one little neat box. And that has definitely been true of Hawkeye from the start and especially true of this year when they took what little formula I had to expect and just threw it out the window completely. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is... Uh, Hawkeye was one of the boldest superhero comics off the shelves from its first issue, but... But it got even bolder in its second year, I think, um, with not just the Pizza Dog issue and not just the, the Barney Barton issue and the the Kate Bishop uh, stories that they've been telling, which are all phenomenal. Or the, the also, clown. There was an issue that just focused on the clown, the new villain. Yeah, um, and that yeah. was awesome and scary and weird. Yeah. Um, but even the, even the more normal stories you've been being told, you know, um, Clint's efforts to get a girl out of trouble that ends up getting the girl and all the other women in his life into some trouble was just like the standard arcs that this book is telling were just phenomenal they're great hard-boiled noir superhero fiction that i didn't even know was possible yeah it's it's amazing it's the book that can um it's the book that can make the mundane just so incredibly interesting it's it just really plays up that whole angle of like this is the normal guy who's like in the extraordinary world but like like the stuff that's going on when like everybody wonders like what the hell is Hawkeye getting up to when he's not here at the mansion is it's, it's just like, he's always making his own life worse for himself. He's his own worst enemy. And, um, it's just like his world is just so real and visceral. And there are so many consequences there. And you, you, you really feel for this character in a way that like fraction has taken away so much from Clint in the past year and just every new defeat is just even more of a blow than the next. And, like, I'm not just even talking about like when he gets his ass kicked, which happens a lot. But the things, like, just, like, Kate saying she's disappointed in him is just such, like, a visceral, like, hit to this character. And something that you really feel as, like, a gut punch. Um, it, it's it's just you such... character deaths that were just, like, a slap to the face. Yeah. You had, I mean, this is the book that could do, you know... A Hurricane Sandy issue, a hard-boiled noir uh, story. Um, oh, a, a, a dog uh, story starring a dog. Like yeah, a dog these... solves a murder in this book. <laughs> yeah. All of these things could happen, and like you just nod along, and it's awesome. Yeah, like... yeah, it is. It, it is. It is hilarious and heartbreaking. Like in the span of a page turn, um, it, it's it's phenomenal. It really is. 
I, I think it's the most unique superhero comic on the stands right now. It, it feels like this should be being published by like Vertigo or Image or something. Um, but it's at Marvel and it's Yeah, that it's yeah. a that it's a big two book is, is incredible. It doesn't it doesn't look or feel like a big two book. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't been cancelled yet. Yeah. So. And it you know what? It's it you know what's awesome? It sells really well. Like That's it's fantastic. It, I mean it's not like a top ten performer, but it's 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 safe. It's a safe book. Like, and I hope that's it goes on for years. Yeah, it, it, it's it defies all conventional logic all of the time, and I couldn't be more happy. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's Fraction finding a wheelhouse where he can just do whatever he wants, and we'll love him for it. Yeah, it's it's the universe rewarding him for Defenders getting canceled, uh, which was the book that we loved last year and and talked about. I think on this podcast last year. Uh, um, let's we talk should about move Fatal. on from Hawkeye, though. We got a lot more to talk about. Yeah, um, Fatal. Yeah, talk about Fatal, which, um, so I was looking over this book today, figuring out where it was going to land on my list, and it's a book that, like, the master plotting of it is, is, is amazing, dense, and intricate, but ultimately, I think, as it comes out monthly, Fatal is a book that works phenomenally well in single-issue format. Um, it's, it did, you know, it, it had an arc this year where, uh, it was several standalone issues that were sort of thematically tied together, and each one of them knocked it out of the park and stuck with me to the point that when I was, uh, opening them to look them over today, it was like, oh my god, this is this one, and it was so good, and then when you get back into the, into the larger story, it's been equally as resonant, so it's a book, I would say this year, the thing that impressed me the most is, is that it just, issue by issue, was knocking it out of the park. Yeah, it's, um... It's impressive in that it's like there's really only two characters that have carried over throughout the entire series. So Brubaker is basically sort of like having to like completely come up and make you connect with like a whole new group of characters from issue to issue, arc to arc, and has been really successful in doing that. And by the time of like, you know, your time, it's time to leave this particular time period that the book is focusing on and move on to the next, like you're sad to see these characters go, but like you, you get so attached to them but then there's going to be like a whole new group that comes in that is going to be in many ways equally engaging and just inhabit this world and give you more um, uh, pieces to the puzzle of what jo of what um, Josephine is going through and what the femme fatale curse is. Um, it, it's it's just impressive the way it's been going through the decades, and I, I've really been enjoying the uh, the '90s grunge rock arc with the with the rock band that she's currently wreaking havoc among, and sort of the new twist on the dynamic where Joe doesn't remember who she is, doesn't remember why she needs to be careful around uh, men, and like what she might even be doing to these people. Uh, it, it's just been like a very neat twist on a. Uh, the the usual format for how I expect an arc of Fatal to go, and just continuing to tell one of the best noir stories in comics. Like Ed, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips are just the masters of comic noir, and adding the uh, the Lovecraftian horror element into it has it's it's a it's a match made in heaven. It's like it, it, it works so well together. I, I'm surprised that we haven't seen more sort of like horror noirs before. Um, it's it's really good stuff. And, I mean, this book, is managed, it managed to be a horror noir that can take place in literally any time period and work, which is yeah. also incredible. Oh, yeah. Like, we've bounced around decades and even centuries at some points, and it works. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much more I can say about it than that. It's just, it's, it's been great, and it had several standalone issues that if I were doing an issues list this year, uh, I would have, it would have been murder to pick the best issue of Fatal. Yeah. Um, moving on, let's talk about Young Avengers. Um... We 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 talk a lot about 
just in general and but especially in this podcast i think we mentioned a few times is the idea of like the real special synergy that crops up between certain writers and artists uh mark wade and chris somney uh matt fraction and david aja uh but for me the the best example of this that you can find in comics is kieran gillen and jamie mckelvey these two work so well together um that they elevate each other's craft to a level like no other when they're paired. Like these are great creators in their own right when they're working on their stuff separately from each other. But when they come together, it is just pure magic. And Young Avengers, uh, we got all, all 13 issues I've shipped so far have shipped within this year and basically been telling the same story pretty much from the start and has been telling a very concise, focused story using the metaphor of being a superhero for the trials and tribulations of what it's like to be 18 and not really know who you are or who you're going to be to have this feeling that you might have potential, but not really knowing what that means and has just really told a story that's just full of emotion. Um, that's folk that, that is like embraced some of the fun visceral sides of comics, like the fight scenes, but like at the same time has been just more about like the messier aspects of growing up and making mistakes and like mistakes that should be very, that are very universal. That should be very recognizable. Like anybody who's ever gone through a breakup, like it, there's something to relate to in this book. It, it's for, for a book about like dimension happening teen superheroes you've never heard about. I think it's, it's there's a real degree of poignancy to it and a real relatability to it that um i i think is uh just makes it a title that pretty much is very accessible despite the fact that it is kind of entrenched in marvel continuity to a degree that might might scare you away a little bit but i would not let that deter you Bear no, i don't understand it. half the marvel continuity stuff and i love the book yeah yeah it's it's definitely worth it it's 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 such a special thing that's happening right now and it has been so consistently solid throughout and McKelvey and Gillen just sing when they work together. It's, uh, it's one of those drop the mic books and they are going to, it's like two more issues and this is done. And I, I'm very like, I wish we were getting more. I wish to God we were getting more, but instead we're just going to get this one short, perfect little thing. And it's, it, there's almost something more beautiful to that. This run just like burning so quickly and so brightly and then just being gone. Um, it's the second year in a row that I've been mourning the uh, the end of a Kieran Gillen book. Yeah. And the second year in a row I've been mourning the end of a Kieran book starring Lo- Kieran Gillen book starring Loki that did new and different things with Loki. Yeah. <laughs> um, that Young Avengers has managed to attack to the ideas of, of teen anxiety and not really knowing who you are and and not being not exactly being sure how much about you or anyone around you you control in so many different ways with Loki trying to balance the idea of maybe hoping to be a hero with the continuing to be Loki and having that getting in his way. Um, you've got Billy uh, Wiccan worrying he's controlling re- all of reality and then maybe being forced to try to control all of reality. Um, you've got the sort of complicated relationship between Novar and Kate Bishop. Um, this book is just, it's overflowing with all sorts of great uh metaphor and characterization but beyond that it's just it's fun it's weird it's funny it's doing uh something different which we say about every book on this list but i think continues to be true i mean yeah this is a book it's it's bold it's pop art it's um it's very metatextual and it's just a it's a blast um 
it was very nearly the second year in a row that Kieran Gillen's Loki book became my number one book of the year. Uh, I think Young Avengers is going to end up coming in at number two on my list this year. Yeah, um, I think it. I, I haven't quite finalized my list yet, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be my number one. Um, and it's a completely defensible choice. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's it's just um, it, it's one of those moments in comics where while you're reading it, you know that this is going to be a book that is going to be part of the conversation for years to come. It's just one of those books that like, sometimes you need a little bit of a long view to realize what the important stuff is, but this isn't one of those books. This is something that like, it's pretty easy to recognize that you're involved in something special. If you're reading this right now, as it's coming out. An absolute classic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, an absolute classic. Um, and, uh, the last thing I want to mention about it is just how much, um, fun, uh, Gillen and McKelvey have with the fight sequences and just like that there's like there's a big bold fight sequence every issue where McKelvey tries to do something really kind of offbeat with the page layouts and um it's just like I always look forward to it in every issue because it's sort of like this like what because he's really been challenging himself and he's really been stepping up his game like each issue and it's it's always a sight to behold um so yeah there's there's a lot of great storytelling there's a lot of great artwork and there's just it's it's just a a team that just really works well together and yeah yeah no no, that's that's pretty much all i can say about it yeah yeah one of the things one of the images in all of comics that stands out the most to me this year um i wish we had more time to talk about these iconic images because there have been several on our list but novar in the nightclub the the way that mckelvey laid out that gunfight uh in the nightclub was just incredible. Oh yeah. Um, it's it it blew my mind, and I mean, I think that was you know second or third issue, and it's still stuck in my head. Yeah. Ten months later. Um, beautiful, beautiful work. And again, I I really mean it when I say I think ten years down the road, Young Avengers will be looked on as a classic. Oh yeah, and, and it's one of those things that it, it just feels like very much of this moment in time. It, it, it's like like writing books about young superheroes is always kind of tough. Uh, because it's like the, usually it's like being written by 30 or 40 year old men and it doesn't really come out well. Gillen really remembers what it's like to be young. And I think his young, his young characters not only sound young, they sound young of like of this day and age. They sound like the youth of 2013 like this is one of the few writers i've ever seen make a twitter joke that works yes yes and that's that's perfectly indicative of what i'm talking about and like he he gets what it means not only what it means to be young but what it means to be young right now in this century Uh, i mean this decade (laughs) is what i'm trying to say (laughs) um yeah and that's a rare talent absolutely uh i guess we should move on um and and talk about Saga, which uh, I just, I mean, basically, I think what I, we, I think we maybe mentioned a little bit of this before we started recording the show, but I think basically my takeaway from Saga is like, wow, it's still a great book this year. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know that a whole lot about the book changed. It just kept kicking ass for another year. Um, so maybe I'll kick it over to you for, for some more uh, coherent thoughts on what was so great about it this year. You know, it's like, I'm going to be very, very concise about this too. And I don't want people to think we're being dismissive here right now. 
It's just that there's there's not like a whole lot you can keep saying when the book is that consistently good. Like all the same things that have been true about this book and why it's been so great for so long maintain to be true. It's Fiona Staples, gorgeous artwork that is just so emotive and like the range of emotions she's able to capture with her characters. It's the relatability of your leads, Marco and Alana, even though they are like one of them has like uh, antlers and the other one has butterfly wings. Like these are just, they feel like, people that maybe you live next door to for a while or something like they, they are just it, it, it's a completely uh just world infused with imagination and science and uh like like science fiction and fantasy and at the same time feels so incredibly accessible and relatable and true to experiences that we've all had um, it, it, it's, it's a synergy that I've never really seen in comics before. And Brian K. Vaughn makes it look so effortless and it, it, it's not, it is like, like you analyze all the different pieces of this series and you ask yourself how they're all working together the way they are. And I do not have an answer for you. Yeah. Compare this to East of West too, which honestly, I love them both so much. It was, it was a toss up, which one was getting up higher. And I think it's going to end up being Saga. Yeah. Um, but compare this to East of West and he is juggling all these different genres and all these different elements. Um, uh, and I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it is very clear. Know, like there's a, you know, Prince robot, the fine with its TV face walking around and there are all sorts of different hitmen and all sorts of different cultures and magic and science. And like, I know exactly what's going on every issue in Saga. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> Um, so it's it's sort of the opposite side of a coin. There are two books that I love that are doing very different things. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think at the core, Saga is a story about, you know, uh, young parents and um, trying to make it in a world that does not know what to do with them and usually tries to hate them for it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful story uh, in that regard, in addition to being just an amazing, fanciful, uh, fantastic sci-fi fantasy space epic. Yeah. Um, um, so let's let, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, the the last book on our list. Thanks for sticking with us, folks. We know it's been a long podcast, but um, you know we like comics. I'm guessing if you've listened <laughs> this long, you do too. Um, so let's talk about Wonder Woman. Um, which uh, again, this is this is another year where I think Wonder Woman is both extremely high on both of our lists. And yet another year where we kind of both say to ourselves, I never thought I would see the day when I was saying that Wonder Woman is one of the best superhero comics. No, just like one of the best comics period out there. Um, but it really is. It's um, it, it, by far it's it was the book that took the most advantage of the new 52. It's been telling basically the same story for the past 24, 26 issues now. And um, it's hasn't dipped in quality at all it hasn't become repetitive it hasn't like most stories that last like over two years i would be up in arms saying let's get on let's move on let's let's get to the next thing i want so much more of this like i i am so happy with the direction that this book has been going um the the writing is nuanced it's layered there's subtleties to it the characters um the, the allegiances change so fast. It's, it's almost like there's like a Game of Thrones-esque quality to it and like how many different 
uh, alliances and allegiances there are, and you can never know exactly quite who you can trust and how much longer you can trust them for. But at the same time, there is also this close little knit dynamic forming around Diana and this little surrogate family that she's developed that you just have grown to care about so much. And I think I'm not positive that this issue took place this year, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh, because if it wasn't this year, it was like, it was basically right on the cusp. It may have been just like the last week of 2012 this came out, but there's this image where it's like the close supporting cast of Wonder Woman. And they're all gathered in the living room, kind of just sitting down on the couch. And we're talking about like, some of them are like, gods of the greek pantheon you have orion of the new gods and then you have this like this uh zola who's basically just like a girl from the backwoods of i think it's like kentucky or something just like hanging out in the living room chilling together and it's like this happy little family unit and the hell that they are put through in the year that follows just makes that image like so much more heart-wrenching in retrospect and uh is to azarala's credit of just like how much of a world he's built up around Wonder Woman in like a two year span of time. And we, we talked about this podcast, we started this podcast talking about just like how much Jeff Johns has added to the mythos of Green Lantern. Uh, to me, Azarala has been doing the same thing for Wonder Woman and really just out of whole cloth, springing up a world around her that makes me get the character in a way that I never really did before. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, Wonder Woman is my number one book of the year. A, a sentence I didn't think I would, yeah, we, like you said, I never would have imagined saying that. It's, it was the best comic I read month in, month out this year. Yeah. And it, I mean, it works on every level. It has made Diana herself this phenomenal, amazing character who finally deserves her place as one of the big three alongside Superman and Batman. Um, and who honestly had a better year than either of them and whose book I'm looking far more forward to reading than either of them, even though Batman is my favorite superhero and always will be. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's not just Diana. It's the supporting cast, both the heroes and the villains, the pantheon of gods. Like, this is a... Every new character that's introduced here feels automatically indelible and iconic and automatically fits into this world. The designs on the pantheon are beautiful and the writing of them is phenomenal. Um... But yeah, even, I mean, that you can sit Zola, this backwoods girl, uh, Hera, former immortal and now mortal, um, Orion of the New Gods, uh, Hermes, you know, all these people in a room together and they're just like, they, they gel and they have different and evolving relationships is just, it's phenomenal to watch. This, yeah. is a, this is a book that exists in a fully realized world with a fully realized lead and an amazingly fully realized supporting cast. It's just... Uh, and it, it told just a fucking roller coaster of a story this year that, I mean, not only it took Azarello's new status quo and blew it up and changed what he's, the story he's been telling, even though it continued it. Um, a couple times within the year too. Like I can think yeah. of like two distinct, like status quo shift moments within like this past year itself. Uh, yeah. Like, and huge status quo shift moments that like, that have changed everything and will continue to shape the book going forward. Yeah. Um, and like... With those, you also had big character moments. It wasn't just a big plot sh shift here or there. The character moments really hit in this book. We've talked, I think, a little bit here and there about uh, some of the runs uh, that just, like, they move too quickly for the character beats to really hit. Not in this book. Every time something happens to a character, it just, it, you feel it. Um, and, yeah, this is a book... This is a book that I hope goes on for ten more years. I mean, yeah. I want Azarello to have been writing Wonder Woman for ten years in eight more years. yeah. Uh, it, it is, and, and it, it, it's just kind of off in the corner doing its own thing. Um, I, I wish more books kind of would reflect the changes that are made. And like, like finally, 
I, I'm not reading it, but I, I'm just happy that the uh, the Superman Wonder Woman book that's coming out right now is like using some of the uh, the the new Greek pantheon characters in there, and that some of these amazing changes that Azarallo has made are being reflected maybe in like another place or two, um, because it's it's just the so many smart changes being made to this book and so much great coming out of this run that I want this to be the textbook for what Wonder Woman is going for. Like, even after Azarala leaves, I hope that the next guy, like, lives in this world that's been created too because it works so well for the character and it is uh, just made... Like, Azarala has just made Wonder Woman relevant in a way that um, I know DC was always hoping for. And it, it, it's she's definitely become, um, like as critical as Superman and Batman, which is always like a conversation that was going around. Like, um, it does, she deserve this place within Trinity. And like, Azarallo is like, yes, this is the niche she occupies. Like, this is her world and is the world of like, of immortals and gods. And it works so well. And it makes so much sense to me. And this book this year, as you said, was like just a true roller coaster. Um, and I, I, I think that it, it, it's shown no sign of letting up. So uh, I bring on year three. I can't wait. It is it is appointment reading is one of my favorite books. It's probably going to be my number two book, but it is incredible. Um, I can't really say enough good things about it. I'm basically just babbling right now. Uh, yeah, I but, mean, I, yeah. I I think I think we both end up gushing about the books we love that much. Yeah, um, we should probably wrap up. I'll I'll give the last words before sign off to you. But I just want to say, 2013 as a whole in comics has been huge a huge one for me i think i was reading more books uh more consistently than i have in any year previously and to the point where like i'm probably gonna have to do an end of the year call just to get back to manageable levels of comics reading um and there was a lot to love even even a lot that we didn't get to talk about in this podcast tonight uh even with all the books we did shout out so i hope uh we talked about some things you uh should check out that you aren't checking out um you should let us know what we missed just in case maybe we're not even checking it out, you know? I'm sure there are things out there we're missing. We're going to get so, so many letters from the American Vampire fans. It's not even funny. Yeah, that's, get that's ready. a book that I feel like that that book is like Deadwood for me, which is like, I know it's amazing, guys. I'm going to get to it eventually. <laughs> the American Vampire people are coming for us. They're coming fast. <laughs> well, they know how to reach out, and if not, I'll remind them now. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at ReviewBeNamed. You can email us at ReviewBeNamed at gmail.com. You can comment on the website at reviewtomename.com where you can read Chris and I's lists all week this week. Uh, this podcast should be coming out at the end of it, so all those, those lists should be up by the time you're hearing this. Um, and with that, Chris, I'll let you give some last thoughts and shut us down. Uh, it was another, as you said, another great year in comics. Uh, I, I, I hope that uh, we really said some interesting things about books that resonated for you guys because like obviously we really like talking about comics but i think it was indicative about how great a year it was is that we were kind of racing to get through this podcast because there were so many books that we wanted to touch upon because like honestly like i think there's about maybe like at least there's probably at least like 10 other books for each of us that we also wish we could have gotten into this podcast and talked about because like there's just so much good stuff out there right now it's a great time to be reading comics i think more so than like tv or film uh, fans, comic fans tend to get jaded really easily and feel like 
the best days are always behind them and like the stories coming out right now are not nearly as good as the stuff that was coming out maybe like five or six years ago. Like I do not feel that way. I think that we have consistently been in like a golden age of comics for like the past three or four years and it's just getting better right now. Like the stuff Image is doing, the stuff Marvel is doing and the books that are coming out of DC which are like on are so on. Um, there's, there's so much good stuff to be reading. If you like superhero stuff, there's great superhero stuff. If you don't like great, super, if you don't like superhero stuff, there's amazing comics that you should be reading out there. Sex Criminal, Saga, these are all books that will appeal to, like, people who just like genre, who just like great stories. Um, so it's a great time to be a comics fan. It's a great time to become a comics fan. And, um... We're looking forward to what happens in the next year, and uh, hopefully there's going to be a whole bunch of these books on our list next year, as well as a few that we didn't see coming. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll keep talking about comics throughout the year.